Good morning, everyone. Good morning. And Russell's going to open class of prayer for you this morning. Eternal Heavenly Father, we come before you today to acknowledge you as our Creator, Redeemer. We thank you for giving us life, giving us the, the gift of health, and the ability to heal. Uh, most of all, I want to thank you for doing such great things to reveal your character of love through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son on earth. We ask that, uh, in accordance with your will, that you put your healing hand on Joy as uh, she's dealing with uh, multiple myeloma. Please uh, comfort her and her family. Um, as you see the best. Well, thank you for giving us this one day uh, set aside from creation, not as an arbitrary test of obedience, but as clear and compelling evidence of the type of God that you are. Please continue to bless this class collectively and individually, and when you come again, may we all be standing ready. Christ, amen. 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 This week we are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly, The Christian Life, and the title for this week's lesson is Heaven. And if someone read the memory text for us right there on the Sabbath lesson. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. And this is a very familiar memory verse to most of us. We learned it as children. Any thoughts about this text as we open the class today? As I grew up, thought that Jesus was going to prepare a mansion for me. But he says, it is there. Yeah. Okay. In my Father's house are many rooms. How about, um, in my Father's house is room for many? Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Sure. In my Father's house is room for many. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I... Uh, go, I will come again and receive you into myself, that where I am you may be also. Let's keep that in mind as we go through, because that, that text is actually going to come back to play an important insight in some of the other subject matter for the, for the lesson this week. Russell. You growing up, we're always, we always think of this as a future event or a distant place. But can't we, can't we occupy space in our Father's house here on earth? Expound on that. Are we are we intended to be living pillars of of a church, the church, which is also called God's house? That's ex- well. That's what it says in Revelation that we are pillars in the house of God. When Paul, Peter says that we are living stones built into a house of God, house for God. Pardon? Our bodies to the temple of God. So I, I like that insight. I like that insight that it starts now, and if it doesn't start now, that we become part of that, then we won't be part of it then. Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah, that's good. That is really good. Um, read, uh, read both paragraphs for us there in Sabbath lesson, somebody. For many, the word heaven has become meaningless, a concept that belongs to the realm of fairy tales. We delude ourselves, they say, if we think there's some kind of life beyond this earthly existence. Some go so far as to say it's positively wrong to tell people that there is a heaven. They argue that it keeps people from putting all their efforts into what they could achieve in life here and now. Even many Christians struggle with the concept. They are not so sure that heaven is a real place. Should heaven, rather, be interpreted as a state of mind? On the other hand, there are many who believe that the death of the soul is relieved. At death, the soul is released and enters heaven to live with God. They are confident 
now with God in heaven, and that a few years at most separate them from a reunion with their loved ones. What is the truth on this important topic? Any thoughts, comments, questions? Because this is what we're going to explore for the rest of our class today. After, uh, after losing uh, two infants, preemies, I got thinking about it more, and I thought, so they're there, the angels are raising my kids, they're going to look down at me and see how miserable things can get on occasion here. And, and I was raised Lutheran, so that was kind of nothing, and I thought, it just didn't come together as as real. I think there's a, something inside saying, I don't quite buy that, I don't know what I buy, but I don't buy that. Well, let's look at the roots of this whole concept. Where does this concept that, uh, that we you know, go to heaven when we die or we you know, burn forever in hell when we die if we're not good? Where does this come from? And in Sunday's lesson, the first paragraph states the following. It is quite astonishing that the idea of an immortal soul, which is separable from our physical body and which ascends to heaven right at death, has become a dominant among Christians. Uh, Satan's lie in Eden was, you will not surely die. Uh, this idea of an immortal soul... What evidence do we have, one way or the other, that man is either mortal or immortal? What evidence do we have? Well, the lesson, let's start with the two lesson gives us. You notice there's some text listed right there. Let's, let's start with a couple of those. Psalms 13.3. And, and let's see if this evidence is persuasive evidence or is there maybe better evidence in Scripture than some of these texts. Psalms 13.3 says, Look on me and answer, O Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. That's, that is, uh, you know, being used as evidence that death is asleep. Could one argue that the psalmist was being poetic? And he really wasn't trying to describe death, but he was trying to describe his state of mind and his heart. Hmm. How do we know this isn't just a euphemism? that this is to be taken literally. Does the Bible ever use euphemisms, or is everything in the Bible literal? Well, the... the yes? The rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's actually in our notes. We're going to get to the rich man and Lazarus, because it's one we have to examine to understand this question. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. It says, For the living know that they will die. But, and this is, by the way, one favorite one in our church. It comes up all the time as a proof text uh, because it's taken very literal. Watch how unliteral we take part of this because we don't like part of it. We only want part of it to be literal, so we split it. No, that's not literal. This part's literal. Read it. For, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. And even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have, any, have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Now, many Bible scholars will argue that this is actually a pessimistic old man at the end of his life who squandered his life through sinful living. We're talking Solomon, who, remember, went all into that abomination living and sacrificed his own son to Molech. And, and eventually, at the end of his life, after trying out all this sinful living, comes to the conclusion that everything is vanity. Vanity, vanity, and nothing's worthwhile. And so this is an old pessimistic man saying that th this earth, nothing really matters. And that's, this is not to be taken literal. We like it because it supports our construct that at death, we sleep in the grave waiting till res resurrection, and there is no knowledge of things going on. But if we take it literally. Is it literal that even the memory of them is forgotten? Everybody who dies, we forget the memory of them. What about this one? Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. 
Do we take that literal? Do we believe that when you die, you will never again be resurrected to have part in anything under the sun? There's not a lot of answers going on. This is the NIV. The clear word? That's a nice paraphrase. Share it with us. The living know that someday they will die, but the dead know nothing. They are no longer rewarded here for what they've done, and gradually they fade from memory and are forgotten. Their love, hate, jealousy are all gone and buried. Never again do they have a part in anything that's happening here on earth. Really? Never again they have a part. If you're dead, the sun, the earth's sun will shine again. Really? Where's the, where's the resurrection take place? Where's the new Jerusalem come down from earth to? Jesus is the sun. Jesus will become our shining light then. We won't need the sun. That's only at the end of the thousand years. There's going to be a great... It's only the end of the thousand years. And once the final thing happens, if you remember, at the end of the thousand years, there's a resurrection, and those people are being marshaled by Satan, making weapons of war. They're going to march on the city. There's going to be a whole period of time there that goes by before. Isn't that true? So do we take it literal that they're never going to do anything again on earth? Are we splitting hairs to say? I'm just pointing out that we like part of this very literal... But we don't like the other part very literal. That's all I'm pointing out. Isn't that true? We want to split the text. Yeah. So I'm just suggesting that these two texts may not be the best text for our position. There's better text than these. That's all I'm suggesting. I don't think our position is wrong. I just think that these texts aren't maybe the best text that we can do to advance the position of, of the state of man and his creation. So let's, let's see if there's some better text that we can look at. By the way, what would you say, before we look at the next text, what do you say to somebody, because we're talking about immortality, about the soul wafting off into heaven or hell at the time of death. Uh, What would you say to somebody who says, well, what about near-death experiences? Have you heard of those? uh, Should I ask, has anybody had one? Anybody want to raise a hand and be courageous enough to, to suggest that? Because they're not uncommon, actually. And the interesting thing is you don't have to be near death to have one. Did you know that? You don't have to be near death to have a near-death experience. Yes, exactly right. Um, 20% of people who suffer heart attacks have near-death experiences. 20%, one in five. But the study at, uh, at the University of Virginia Health Science Center in Charlotte, uh, 58 people who had near-death experiences uh, documented that uh, over half of them would have survived without any intervention, which means they weren't near death. You see? Um, there are multiple theories as to what causes it, from hypoxia, lack, lack of oxygen in the brain, uh, low blood pressure, brain's release of stress hormones like endorphins and enkephalins, um, the various drugs that are given at the time of the resuscitation that can alter brain function. But an interesting theory from Kevin Nelson, a neuropsychologist at the University of Kentucky, uh, suggests that this is a, a sleep disorder called REM intrusion. And REM intrusion, and REM sleep is when you dream. And normally in uh, REM sleep, when you're streaming, your body is paralyzed so that you actually don't physically do all the things with your body that you're dreaming. You're not actually up running down the hall. Uh, you're not punching your spouse. You're not doing all the things that you're doing in your dream. Your body is actually paralyzed uh, in the dream state. And what REM intrusion is, is you have a REM experience while you're not asleep. And that means you have this, it would seem like a hallucination. Your body would be paralyzed. It would feel like you're floating, but you couldn't actually... Um, uh, but you would actually be awake, but, but it would be in a, kind of an altered state. There is some evidence, actually, for that. And then, in 1994, 
in um, Berlin, Germany, um, uh, research was done where they had volunteers through a combination of hyperventilation and holding their breath uh, would bring themselves to the point that they would nearly pass out or pass out. And most of them experienced a euphoric, near-death-like experience where they were floating above the room. They encountered conversations with supernatural beings. And um, the uh, evidence for the, the theory behind this was it was stimulating the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve uh, stimulates the brainstem and is highly uh, active or, or um, affected during a cardiac uh, event and resuscitation. The vagal nerve stimulation happens. So the theory now is that vagal nerve stimulation during a resuscitation or events like this are causing um, these near-death experiences. So... Um, there is a there is biological explanation for why people have this, and it shouldn't be used as evidence that somebody is wafting off to to, to the Netherlands. And don't you think the more we hear about these, uh, that suggestion may even cause us to dream, as it were. Yeah, if you have a belief, he's asking if the suggestion might even cause it. There's no, no question about it. If we have a belief, an expectation of what's going to happen, then um, we can actually cause some of these events to happen in our, in our own life. Um, it's called the placebo effect, if you've heard of that. Uh, some people say um, we don't believe what we see. We see what we believe. Did you all hear that? We don't believe what we see. We see what we believe. And there's a lot of truth in that, actually, that our beliefs determine how we view, interpret, and see the world around us. Um, so let's go back to the Bible now, the texts that give us insight into what happens to the state of man at death. One of the ones I like the best is 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54. And it says that, this is Paul talking to the, to the New Testament church. In Corinth, and he says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must close itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Now, if we already are immortal... Does it make any sense that we have to be clothed with immortality if we're already immortal? No, I mean, the, the contrast here is saying, hey, there's something going on here. We who are mortal must be clothed with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immor- immortality, then the saying is written, will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. So Paul is making a clear distinction here. He doesn't see humans as being immortal. He sees humans being mortal. This is in uh, Luke 8, 49 through 56. I won't read the whole thing to you, but Jesus comes to the, the house of a ruler named Jairus, and they're having a funeral for his daughter. And all the people are wailing and crying, and he says, hey, be quiet. She's not dead. She's asleep. And how did they respond to that? They laughed at him. Now think this out. He says she's asleep, and they start laughing. Why do they laugh? She's dead. Yeah, they think he's nuts. You don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. Um, now, Jesus, of course, we know is, is God on earth. Was Jesus here to be the light of the world, to enlighten minds? Or was he here to kind of confuse and obstruct and, and make things difficult to understand? So when Jesus says she's asleep, was he trying to lead our minds to a construct, a, a way of understanding death in a different way than people did? Yeah. 
Now, Jesus says in this, he says, stop wailing. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that, that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned to her. And at once she stood up. Ooh, wait a minute. Her spirit returned to her. What is that? Did it return from heaven? Did it return from heaven? Or hell. Or the other place. (laughs) Yeah, or hell. You see, do do you see how the text here, um, we need to define what that means. I mean, a lot of people read that same text and go, see, her spirit was with God in heaven. And Jesus did her a great favor by taking her out of heavenly bliss and eternal immortality and joy with the angels. And he brought her back down to a a few more years of pain, misery, suffering, temptation with the possibility of being lost uh, and and all these types of things she would have never experienced. So he did her a great favor, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, if if you actually believe she was safe and secure for all eternity in heaven, past the portals of sin and pain and suffering, why would you want to resurrect anybody? Why would you want to bring them back down here to this planet where they can be tempted again, where they can suffer, where they can be beaten, where they can be crucified, where they can have loss? I mean, why would you want to do that? Would you want to do that to any of your loved ones if you knew they were in, in eternal happiness and bliss and beyond the pain of this world? Would you want to do that? Why would you ever mourn them? You'd envy them. You'd want to be there with them. Why would you ever mourn them? That's right. Actually, actually, there, this is a factor that some theorize with in certain Christian groups. Suicide rates are higher than in other groups. And, it, and, and one of the common themes is that if you believe that when you die, there's two things that go together. Once, saved, always saved. I'm saved. I can't be lost. Nothing I can do to be lost. And two, when I die, I go straight to heaven. Those two beliefs together uh, seem to work in some people to increase the risk of suicide in difficult times. Now, while the Catholic Church has the, um, you go to heaven or hell, death, they also have the suicides of mortal sin. So, if you commit suicide, you always go to hell. You can't go to heaven. And so, it actually, the, the data shows there are less suicides among Catholics because of this teaching. If you go to hell. Those who have the once saved, always saved, and they go to straight to heaven or hell, then there are actually higher suicide rates among them than Catholics. So... Yeah. Yeah, if we could just, you know, go drink some cyanide Kool-Aid, we'd all be in heaven, out of this miserable world. You see how selfish that is, though? Isn't that selfish? I mean, we don't want to stay here and sacrifice ourselves to endure difficulty, to reach out, to minister, to spread the good news to others. We just want to get out of this pain because we want to protect ourselves. Yes. You asked the question, uh, why would anybody want to bring somebody back from heaven? Jesus brought a good friend back to life. So did he bring him back from heaven, back to this old world? That's my point. Did he bring him out of heaven back here? Yeah, that's a great point. So, this word spirit. In the Greek, do you know what the word translated spirit is? Pneuma. We get pneumonia. We get pneumatic pump or pneumatic tire. It can be translated in four different ways. It can be translated wind. And Jesus used it in John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wants to blow. Uh, That is one use, meaning the actual wind when we're outside. It can be spirit, as in Holy Spirit or our spirit. I'm with you in spirit. My my spirit longs to be with you, as Paul wrote in several places. And Jesus used it in that way in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it blows. But the spirit, and he used the same word, pneuma, the pneuma blows where the pneuma blows, but the pneuma. (laughs) You know, it could be a little confusing, maybe. And then it can be used as breath, as in the breath we breathe. 
or the breath of life. And by the way, sometimes the spirit is, is translated rather than spirit as ghost, as in Holy Ghost rather than Holy Spirit. Okay? And uh, when Jesus died in one of the Gospels, and it says he gave up the pneuma, and it could mean he breathed his last, or he expired. What, what do we do when we breathe out? We expiration, okay? <sighs> expired. So he breathed his last, or his breath went out of him. And then the last use of this word in the Bible is a mystical apparition called a ghost. Not the Holy Ghost, but a mystical apparition. And Jesus used it this way, too, if you remember, when he was walking on the water to the disciples and they were scared. He said, it is I. It's not a ghost. I'm real. Touch me. Okay? So he was using it to say, hey, it's not some mystical apparition that you're seeing. It's, it's, it's me. So how do we know which way Jesus meant in this verse here? The breath of life returned to her? Well, let's keep going. See if we can't get to that. And then, of course, the same thing happened when Lazarus died. Jesus said, Lazarus is asleep. We need to go wake him up. And Jesus, again, called death asleep here. Now, in Genesis, says that God said to them, the day you eat would die. The serpent said, in Genesis 3, 4, you will not surely die. Well, what is death? Is death just uh, different stages of living, a different type of living, living in a different place, a different form, a different substance? Is that what death is? Or is death the absence of life? You see, common Christianity and many other non-Christian religions have you believe that death is just a transition to another form of life. That we continue to live, but just in a different metaphysical way. But I don't accept that definition of death. I accept that death, as God talked about it, as the wages of sin, is not living. Non-existence, not being around, not being alive in any form. Everybody comfortable with that definition? Okay. Um... Now, it says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, it says, God, because all these texts are bearing in, how do we, how do we construct an idea? How do we you know, bring the truth to bear? It says, God, the blessed and only ruler, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light. Is God the only immortal one? Yes. Yeah, yes, he is. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're immortal. The rest of us are all mortal. All other beings are mortal. One of the roots to this doctrine is that People believe that at creation, in the Garden of Eden, at that moment in time, when he called Adam to life, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that right there, before there was sin in Adam, God created in Adam some part of him that was immortal, that can never die. Whether you call it a spirit, whether you call it a soul, some part of Adam is now immortal. That's a premise. That premise is not found in Scripture. That's why Paul says the mortal must put on immortality. That's why Paul says that God alone is immortal. So the premise then leads to these other doctrines. If you believe that's true, then you have these other doctrines of what happens at hell because there's some part of us that cannot die. Even angels are mortal. Even angels are mortal. That's right. Satan and his angels are going to die. So let's ask the question, then why have some come to believe? There's two passages from Scripture. Why have some come to believe that mankind is immortal? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. This is Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is, in com- he is comforted here and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from us to there. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is used as proof text that when we die, we go to either heaven or hell. What do you say about that as proof? It's a it's a parable. This is the first comment that we usually say. It's a parable. The comment back is, there is a real man's name used here, and in every parable that Jesus ever gave, he never used a real person's name. This, is, this would be the only time ever, if this were a parable, that God used a person's name. So since God used a person's name, or Jesus used a person's name here, this is not a parable. This is a real story about a real man. That's how it's, re- that's how it's replied. Then you can have these conversations like this, and if you're in hell... You can ask that your family receive special attention and so forth. You can have these conversations and so forth. While you're suffering and burning really, really hard, you can still think about these things and have these conversations. He's now talking about, if this is true, then there's open communication between those in heaven and those in hell. Isn't that what this story is describing? How happy would you be in eternity with your child down there screaming out to you, please, mommy, daddy, please help me, I'm miserable, do something. Is heaven going to be blissful for you? Yeah. Not only that, but how many saints could Abraham hold in his bosom? Yeah, and we take it literal. If we take the whole story as literal, which wants someone to apply, then how many saints could fit in the literal bosom of Abraham, if that's not metaphorical? And if these are disembodied spirits, which, which the... Uh, you know, the people who take this as being a real teaching of what happens in heaven and hell teach that, that because the story says that he was buried, his body was buried, but then, you know, he was in hell. So this is his disembodied spirit there. How is it that he wants a finger to dip water and put on his tongue if he doesn't have fingers or tongues because they're part of the body? You see, if you actually analyze the context, and that's, that's kind of, to me, the superficial argument. The big argument, though, is what would heaven be like if there's open communication between those who are saved and people living in torment and hell forever? Could you really? And, and, and there's a big gulf between that you can't cross. You can only look over and hear the cries and the wails and the agony and the moaning day and night forever and ever and ever. When you try to go to sleep at night, your sound machine won't keep the cries of your child out of your ears. Much of Christianity teaches that heaven will be, that, that will be joy in heaven. We'll, we'll get to ridicule the wicked because we're so happy where we are and they got what they deserve. That's because they only think of the wicked as the people who've harmed them and they don't think of the wicked as their own children. Exactly. Is that kind of the Catholic belief of like perfect indulgence and <laughs> Is that where they get? Um, I don't think that this would necessarily support that belief. That comes from somewhere else. But they might use this as part of it. 
Yeah. So, so let's, let's move on to some more aspects of this. We, we, need to, we need to remember that parables have a point. At the end of this, there's a point that Jesus makes. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, which are the scriptures, if they won't believe what's in the scriptures, they won't believe even if someone from the dead comes back to life. Now, interestingly, this is where I answer the question of, well, he used a real man's name. Yes, because in his foreknowledge, he knew he was going to raise someone named Lazarus from the dead. And he was going to prove this parable to be true. And he was going to give them every help, every possible inducement to believe by giving up a parable ahead of time. You know, even if Lazarus comes back from the dead and speaks to you himself, you won't believe. And what happens in a few weeks down the road? Lazarus dies. Lazarus is raised. And what did they do? They plot to kill Jesus and Lazarus. They wouldn't believe even when Lazarus comes back. Yes. Show you that your lineage won't save you either. It's each individual's choice. So just because you're Abraham's son, or you know, that's not going to help you either. That's excellent because that's actually a myth commonly thought today that if you're a genetic descendant of Abraham, that you have a special dispensation, and that there will come a time when the church has secretly left the earth, that all the Jews then will be saved that are on earth. This is commonly taught through most of Christianity. But these stories and others show that, in fact, it's not about genetic descendancy. It's about heart that has trust in God like Abraham did. That's what makes us uh, connected to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 9, one other text that we need to deal with in, uh, in bringing all the... Because when we formulate a concept, we can't just pick the text we like. We have to bring all the Bible to bear, don't we? So listen to this one. This is Paul writing, Therefore we are always confident to know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Well, there you have it. That clears things straight up, doesn't it? How do you answer that one? This is a difficult one. That what and, and see, uh, my premise is that truth is best attained when we use all the inspired record. We get distortions to the degree we leave inspired record out. If we take here a little and there a little, and, and text here, text there, and then and carve some texts away and don't include those in our understanding, then we start getting distortions. Would you all agree? And the you know the people who believe in a different perspective will leave out some of the texts we've already read about about uh, God alone being immortal, about this immortality, this mortal putting on immortality. These things are kind of put aside, and, and they hold to the two texts here. We tend to to ignore this text, don't we? Yes, we need to include it. Compare that First Corinthians five three. Read that for us, please. For my part. Though I have been absent from you in person, have been present with you in spirit, as thus I present you, I have already passed judgment on the man who has done this. And he goes on with uh, thing. So he's using the same idiom, with a completely different perspective than being a separate spiritual being or whatever. So one explanation is, when he says, I've been absent from you in body, he's saying, I haven't been with you in physical person, but I've been with you in spirit. I've been with you in heart. I've been with you in my mind. My, my heart has been with you. I've been thinking about you, is what he's saying, in this particular 1 Corinthians 5, 3 text. Do you think that's the meaning here? Um, we are confident to know that as long as we are at home in the body, 
we are away from the Lord. So that if we're in the body, we can't be with the Lord in spirit and attitude. Does that same explanation apply here? Or would we normally say, just if we use the 1 Corinthians 5 text, hey, uh, you know, I'm not with the Lord physically right now, but I'm with him in spirit. And in fact, Paul says that other places. In Romans 7. And he talks about the spiritual man living through the spirit and so forth. So, you know, I, I had those same thoughts that Wendell brought up. And I had to look at that. Because that has been presented to me as an explanation for this as well. But as I looked at it, it's like, I'm not sure that that really does meet the answer, does it? So how do we meet this? Well, here's another text that may bear some light on it. Uh, this is out of Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men. Who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God, now get these words guys, very critical, get these words. That God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Do you notice that Paul says when Christ comes, he's not bringing those who were previously resurrected as the first fruits at the, at the time of Christ's resurrection. Remember, at Christ's resurrection, the graves were open, and there were many people who were resurrected and went to heaven as the first fruits. He's not saying that. He's saying those who have fallen asleep are being brought with Christ. How do we put that together? I mean, isn't that what the word says? Do you notice this is another little phrase we tend to ignore? We tend to leave out. We tend to you know, kind of just put a little ellipsis around that, take that out, cut it out of this passage, and just leave it aside. We don't need to leave it aside. We need to incorporate it into our understanding. Because all of it's inspiration. And the more we can incorporate, the better, more clearly we can see the truth about this, this doctrine. Which will give us beautiful insights about God. So, how, how do we put it all together? So here's the things we need to put together in our concepts. Christ called death asleep. The dead who are resurrected in the Bible, many of them were never reported having experienced anything. The Christian church looked forward to the resurrection, not to spiritual transportation. The whole hope of the Christian church, if you read the whole Bible, was the resurrection was what they were looking forward to, not death and spiritual transportation to another world. Isn't that true? We have to put that in. Um, go back to our memory text, the one we started out with. I told you to come to bear again. In my father's house are many rooms, or room for many, or many mansions, whichever version you like. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, in a very short time, you're going to die and waft up here and join me. Is that what he said? No, he said, I'm going to come back and receive you. Well, if they were actually, did God, did Jesus not understand what happens when people die? Or did Jesus understand? So if he understood, and people, when they die, actually come and join him in heaven, why did he tell them, I'm going to go prepare a place and I'm going to come back and get you? Why didn't he say that in a short time you're going to join me? Why would he need to come back at all? You see, so we have to include that aspect into it. Paul's comments about being absent from the body and present from the Lord. We need to include that. The wages of sin being death, not an eternal life and suffering. We need to include that. God alone is the one who's immortal. Everybody else is mortal. We need to include that in our understanding. Jesus brings with him those who have fallen asleep. How do we include that? 
And we also then, in this inclusion, we must ask, as we form this doctrine, as we form our understanding, we have to be asking, what would it say about God? If he were to create beings and then put them in a place of torment for all eternity, what kind of being would God be? Or, what would it say about God if he were to create beings who he knew in the future would rebel and gave them immortality, knowing that they would rebel and then suffer for all eternity? What would it say about God if he were to do that? Or what would it say about God that if he created people who, if they rebel, would die and and no longer suffer and no longer exist? We have to include all those questions as we formulate this, don't we? Okay, yes, so, so think about this. This is process. How do we put all the pieces together? A doctrine that makes every one of those texts fit. Yes. Well, I believe that, that God, Jesus, has our blueprint. That when our bodies rot and we're long gone, and when he comes back, he brings with him who we are. Our blueprint for us to, uh, for the resurrection so that we still are who we are. Okay, I like that very much. I like that very much. In, in 6 BC, 10, which is Bible commentary, 1093, one of the founders of our church wrote the following. Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God, there to be preserved In the resurrection, every man will have his own character. God in his own time will call forth the dead, giving again the breath of life and bidding the dry bones live. The same form will come forth, but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again, bearing the same individuality of features, so that friend will recognize friend. There is no law of God in nature which shows that God gives back the same identical particles of matter which compose the body before death. God shall give the righteous dead a body that will please him. Does that give us insight into how all these texts fit together? And see, the metaphor that many of you have heard me use before is uh, the metaphor of a computer and a server. I have electronic medical records at my office, and I have a laptop computer. And on my laptop computers, I'm seeing patients, I'm typing in patient notes. And it's connected via wireless internet connection to my server in another building across town. Everything I type in instantly backed up. Now, if you take my computer, my laptop, and you were to throw it in a fire and melt it, shoot, take a shotgun and shoot it and blast it, you could say, you've killed my, my computer. That's not going to work anymore. But I could go buy a new piece of hardware, different particles of matter, connect it to my server, download all the data, and what have I just done? I've resurrected my computer. That's what I've done. And see, this is what happens. This is the hard drive. Right between your ears is the hard drive. Everything you choose to hold to in the forming of your character is written on your hard drive. But it's got a wireless connection to the heavenly server. God in the Bible calls them the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb's Book of Life. See, I can promise you in heaven, whatever's up there, they're not parchment scrolls made out of lambskins. It's not, it's not what it is. And it's not going to be magnetic hard drives either. Whatever recording device, the, the Lamb's Book of Life is just a, a, a way to describe a recording device and what's being recorded there. Your individuality, your identity, your character is being recorded there. And who's writing that data into the server? Who's putting the data there? You are. The choices you make in who you become 
If you hold to bitterness, resentment, ugliness, hostility, if you want to go out and hurt people who've hurt you, you are writing that on the heavenly server. And if you get killed with this horrible, bitter, ugly character, what's going to be downloaded when God resurrects you? The same thing. This is why we have to have transformation of heart and character. We have to be reborn, renewed now. And as we experience that renewal process now, where it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, that we have come to love others more than ourselves, that is written in the database of your character in the heavenly server. And then if something happens to the body, just like with my, my computer, if someone were to destroy my computer, okay, other than the expense of buying a new one, it's no big deal. I get all the data, just download, get a new one. This is what Christ said, don't be afraid of him who can destroy the body, but cannot destroy the soul. Greek word for soul? Psyche. Your mind, your individuality. It can't destroy that. But be afraid of the one who can destroy both. You see, they can, any human being can destroy another human being's physiology. We can do that. But nobody can destroy your soul except you. Because what is it that destroys the soul? Sin. And death, Satan cannot force you to sin. He can only tempt you to sin. He can't force you. Remember he took Christ to the, to the top of the temple and tempted Christ to jump off the building? Now, if this was some mafia boss who had some enemy of his up on the high, you know, Empire State Building and he wanted to kill him, does the mafia boss say, well, go ahead and jump, hey, try to trick him. Uh, you know, the Lord will send angels to take Just go ahead. You won't. You won't get hurt. Go ahead and try it. Or does the mafia boss just nudge him off? <laughs> Well, Satan's more evil than a mafia boss, isn't he? So why didn't he just, when he had Jesus up there, just nudge him off? Why didn't he do that? Well, he could have, but what would have happened? The angels would have rescued him. You see, he could not force Jesus to make a choice against God's will. He could only tempt him. We cannot be forced to make choices against God's will. We can be put in situations where we can be in dire straits, tempted, martyred even, where the pressure is built on us. And this is how Satan's strategy works, if you want to know. How did Satan approach Christ in the beginning of the trials? It was with subtlety and with temptation, the three temptations in the desert. This is how Satan approaches you and me. He always approaches us with subtlety first, with temptations, with inducements, with bribes even. All the word I will give to you if you just bow down to me. Bribes, inducements, and subtleties. If we resist those and stay loyal to Christ, Satan always ratchets it up to coercive pressure. And you notice three and a half years later, Jesus is now being beaten, spit upon, and crucified. That's what happened to every one of us who stay loyal as well. We get the subtle inducements, the temptations of the world, the the fleeting pleasures of, of this life that devil tries to bribe us with. If we say no to those things and say loyal, the time will come when he will try coercive pressure. No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. Because he wants to incite fear. He wants to cause you to doubt whether God will be there for you. He wants to cause you to try to protect yourself more than loving other people. But in Revelation 12, 11, those who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes, described in these words, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. You see, don't love your life so much as to shrink from death? I mean, I'm not worried about what happens to me. I'm not trying to protect me anymore. It's not all about me. Something's been changed. I love other people now. I'm going to do what's right because it is right. And right doing is pleasing to God. 
Something's changed in me. This is the kind of transformation God wants to bring. And so all this ties together to the doctrine about what happens with man. Our individualities are safe and secure with God in heaven. We can now understand what Paul meant. Absent from this body of pain, this body of suffering, this thorn in my flesh that I've been struggling with for so many years, I want to be absent from that and I want to be secure and safe with my Lord in heaven. That doesn't mean he's up there gallivanting around. He's secure and safe, waiting for the day that the Lord returns with him on the heavenly server and calls forth Paul with a new immortal body, downloading his individuality into that body. This is a day we look forward to. Yes, right here. This is a question I've struggled with in my mind. Um, If we are resurrected with the same character, what happens if you die before you totally perfected your character? Or does that, I mean, does somehow your character change also? Did you everybody hear this question? It's a a wonderful question. She goes, this is something I've worried about, I've struggled with, and I know many of us have. What happens if we die before our characters are perfected? If if our characters get downloaded and we still haven't achieved that victory yet, uh, do we we, we come back with all the same defects that that we, what, what, is anybody worried about this? Pardon? The thief on the cross. cross. You see, there's there's two answers to this question. And, and both of them have the same outcome. Um, but the question is, what is it, and the real question is, what is the, the minimum threshold requirement that we must cross in order to come up in the right resurrection? That's really the question. <laughs> Isn't that the crash question? <laughs> okay, I want to get across that line, okay? And, and it's really simple, actually. It's not that hard. It's not complicated with all the legal forensic stuff that people always tell you about. It's, it's really two things. It's that we've come to genuinely trust God and we've come to love other people more than ourselves. That's it. And, and, and along that, along that, I guess I would actually say this too. Love, love of other people, but we also have come to love the truth. It says in Thessalonians 2.10, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, that those who perish, perish because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. So, when Christ comes again in the clouds of glory, how many people will know correctly everything there is to know in the Bible at that moment when they're resurrected? No, nobody will. But how many will love God, love others, and love the truth? And have a heart that says, I want to know, I just haven't been able to figure it out yet. I I may have had some wrong ideas that I didn't know were right. But you know what? I'm willing to follow the truth wherever the truth leads. That's my heart. I love truth. I want to know it as soon as I can know it. I want to apply it as soon as I can apply it. And if you have that heart attitude, then you've crossed over from the protect self, fear-based hiding from truth, to love others and pursue the truth with all your heart. That's the issue. It's not about um, have you gotten every detail right or all your doctrine straight. It's not about that. Okay? And wait, I see several hands. I want to finish this point before I get to all the hands. Okay? Um, Because I think this is an important concept to talk about. I appreciate your emphasis of truth, but it's not an abstract abstract truth. It's the love of a person. That's right. You just said either way, the truth life. And so our love is not abstract, but in relationship with, with God. And all truth emanates from him. So as we love truth, it's always bringing us back to him. So, so the idea, what happens then? So one would argue, if you have that attitude, then even if you're resurrected with some things you hadn't quite worked out on this earth, and, and those dis- kind of cognitive distortions or, or misunderstandings are still working, that's the purpose of the thousand years, because you have the right attitude, you love and trust God, and you want to know the truth, you just haven't had it presented in a way that made sense to you, and you couldn't process through it and work it out. During the thousand years, that's when it gets worked out. Some would argue that. 
And that's the purpose of the thousand years, not to sit actually in committees and judge how long the wicked have to stay in the flames and suffer. That's not the purpose of the thousand years. The purpose is to work out all the questions that you've not worked out prior to that. Others would suggest, and there's no evidence for this, this is total speculation, so don't throw out and say, where'd you get that? It's just total speculation. Others would suggest that those who genuinely trust Christ and open their heart to him as we pray, Lord, come into my heart and give him free access to our heart, we have give him the command codes to our server identity, and he adjusts those things in the server while we're asleep because we've given him free access to our heart to do what he needs to do in our heart. Someone make that argument. There's no Bible proof for that, but that's really kind of what happens. Our thoughts are brought into harmony with his. Our will is brought into harmony with his. Our desires are brought into harmony with his while we're alive on this earth as we trust him and let him work in our hearts. Some would argue that any of those little, uh, little kinks that haven't quite been worked out, he kind of takes care of in the, in the server in heaven while we're in the, in the grave. So, you know, I'm open to either one of those possibilities. Because only he only has access to those who have given him the access codes to there, which is trust. And I saw several other hands over here. Yes. Well, in reply to her question, I think the Lord knows, regardless of the length of our days, what our outcome would have been if we would have lived longer than that. Mm-hmm. He knows what our choices would have been. So I think if you die premature, that he's going to give you the benefit of what your life would have been if you would have even lived longer than that. The, the point about being afraid of him who can destroy body and soul, this week on the religious radio station, that was mentioned to be God the Father. Yeah, I wrote about that last week on my blog. So last week's blog was Matthew 10:28, uh, explaining further some people had questions about who's, who is it that actually has the power to destroy the soul. And if you'd like to take some time and just look at last week's blog on our website, comeandreason.com, um, there's a whole explanation about really who, who is the one we should fear. And I can just tell you the bottom line is we need to be more afraid of sin that is destroying us than God who is trying to heal us. But the reverse is what happens. We're more afraid of God than we are of the sin that's destroying us. Let's go on. There's a couple other things in the lesson this week that I wanted to get to. And I know we're running out of time. Um, Monday's lesson, it talks about, now we're moving into the question of hell and what happens in hell. Um, And I I wish we had time to talk about all of that. It says in there that, um, in the first paragraph, that everyone uh, determines their end by their own choice. It talks about people making their own choices. And I would agree with that. It says, in the end, no one asked to be born. We're here only because we've been created without our consent. Uh, it's, in the end, our own choice. Our own choice, who, whether we're saved or lost. Everybody agree in the end it's our own choice? Yes. Then you should think about why so many people have God sitting on a judgment throne determining who will be lost and who will be saved. Um, because that's how it's often taught. It's not our choice. We live our life and then he makes the choice because he makes the judgment on who's saved and lost. That's how most people see it. You should think that through. That's really not what I think is happening. I think this lesson is right. You make your choice. Uh, as you choose to whether you're going to accept and, and Christ and, and allow him into your heart or whether you're going to reject him. We don't have time to talk about all the things in hell. I'll just tell you this. In the third angel's message, ask the question, where does hell take place? Where does it happen? Well, it says right in the text about God's fury being poured out, the strength, strength uh, into the full strength of the cup of his wrath, it will be burning sulfur, tormented in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. It takes place in God's presence. 
God's presence is the source of the fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29, Isaiah 33, 14, and 15 talks about only the righteous are able to live in the consuming fire and the eternal burning. The wicked can't live there, but the righteous live for eternity in that fire. And there's many texts on that, and there's another uh, question of punishment on our blog, all long list of texts that, that support this concept. Peter Kreef, though, it came in an, in an email this week. It said, what is the wrath of God? Is it real or not? It is real, but it is not part of God himself. God is not half love and half wrath or 99% love and 1% wrath. God is love. Wrath is how love appears to us when we sin or rebel or run away from him. The very light that is meant to help us appears to us as our enemy when we seek the darkness. Do you like that? I like that very much. And I think that's exactly right. God is always love, 100% love, but when we're in darkness, the, the light scares us. Remember, Jehoiah said, those who are in darkness don't want to come into the light. When we're in darkness, the, the light of love and the light of truth is painful. It torments, it tortures. This is why when Moses came down off the mountain, his face radiating this light, the children of Israel couldn't stand it. They backed away and asked him to veil his face. Moses was their friend. He was out to help them. They didn't want to be near him. Why? Because it appeared to them awful when it was actually wonderful. And then, boy, I'm going to have to close with this. This is out of Great Controversy 542. It says, the Lord bears long with the wicked, uh, with their decisions. But will he then chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to be in heaven and, 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 and stay by him? Uh, pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Could they enter heaven and dwell forever in a place of love and truth? Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, holy state of perfection that exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains, raising an honor to God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of love flowing upon the redeemed. Could they enjoy this? Could they endure the glory of, the, of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven. But they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven. And now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves. Notice that, voluntary with himself, and just and merciful on the part of God. Like waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Incurable. Why do the people die in the end? Because God doesn't want them there? Because he stops being loved? Because he turns to anger? Because he wants to punish? Because he wants to inflict penalties? Or because they are so solidified in wickedness and rebellion and self-centeredness that love is torture to them, truth is hateful to them. And they have so destroyed the faculties that God has given us in our minds and our brains that recognize and respond to truth and love. Those faculties are so destroyed that they're beyond healing. And say, well, God can do anything. God could physically reverse time, put them back in time where they have those faculties again that recognize truth and respond to love. But having had no change in character, they would simply live the same reprobate life to destroy those faculties all over again. So they're incurable. There's nothing God can do to reach them. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the ability to reason and think. That you have not come as a power monger telling us believe or die, love or die. That you have given us the opportunity to study these things out for ourselves and you've invited us to reason with you. You've gone to great lengths to bring us the truth 
about yourself that will destroy the lies. Open our hearts to trust. And we now ask that you will enlighten our minds, transform us from beings who are operating only on fear and, and the need to protect ourselves to, to people who love others and love you, that we can be a light in this world and take this message to this world that we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.